Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. Greetings for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book title is Sammy's Big Adventure. Sammy explores Charlotte, North Carolina. I don't know who Sammy is, but my author joins me from that area, a guest author, Pete Maravitz. Welcome, sir, to the program. Oh, thank you, Jay. It's wonderful to be on your show. Well, this is uh, this is a a book that obviously, at least from uh, initial observation, is directed towards children. You have written other books. This is uh, number three in the series. If am I understanding your your authorship to this point? Oh, actually, Jay, it's uh, number four. Number four. Um, yeah, I mean, Charlotte is number three, but I do have four. Let me just correct myself on that. Sure. Um, and my books are about you know family values, and. Uh, Charlotte, uh, I got inspired by the city um, when I got down here in 2013, and I stayed true to my value system, and I got a new concept, which is taking Sammy on his adventure to explore different cities in the United States and teach him the value of culture. So I take him to different landmarks of the city to appreciate and learn about that city and to appreciate the United States as a whole. Are and you, then I'm running with that concept, and, you know, I have also my fourth book is uh, Sammy Explores Columbus, Ohio. Fabulous. Now, you you uh, explaining this to my listeners who cannot see the cover. Uh, who is Sammy? Okay, Sammy was my cat who passed away um, about eight years old. And what I've done is made him a character and made his memory alive, stay alive, and so um, it was one way for me to get over the grieving period at the same time, you know, my passion for uh, enjoying writing uh, created these stories uh, using Sammy as a character uh, to actually, uh, you know, as I was saying, keep his memory alive and have a good character for kids, uh, you know, which kids and families love animals and stuff as we do. And, um, have them just be engaged in a fun character to uh, learn about geographical areas, culture, and good values and good mor- morals that I put in my stories. Fabulous. Now, your your background, uh, you are an author at, at the present time. Is that your primary focus in life, or have you had other interests as well? Um, I went to, uh, graduated from the University of Akron in 1996, and uh, I graduated in uh, criminal justice. Um, so I, I, my interest there was uh, I wanted to be a police officer at that one time. Hmm. And then, uh, you know, life went on and um, I became an author in 2009 and uh, have uh, my wonderful series for the kids and, um, you know, trying to teach good, wholesome, uh, give, give them good, wholesome values and, uh, also teach them some good uh, uh, information, education about all the beautiful cities that we have in the United States uh, through the value of culture and taking them to the different landmarks that uh, uh, make up the, the city as a whole so that for them to appreciate and learn at the same time. Uh, I think that's a fabulous aspiration. Now, this book is a little bit unique. It is directed uh, primarily as your audience, a younger younger audience. However, uh, the way you have uh, crafted it uh, with your uh, with your illustrator and uh, with the layout, explain that to my listeners. This is a little bit different than other children's books in the market. 
Yes, uh, it is unique and original. Uh, what I've done is actually take the actual landmark to which uh, is in that city, and then with my vision of taking with my uh, using my illustrator to actually make the characters and what we've done is sort of morphed them into um, the scenes of the landmarks uh, to which I am uh, um, taking uh, Sammy and the kids as they read through the, the story to actually see the actual landmark to which they would uh, see if they came to the city and, and learning about that actual landmark as they're reading. Uh, that's a great idea. The The, the book itself, uh, how long did it take? It's not a long book or a difficult read. It's about 24 pages. Uh, I would, from observational standpoint, say that perhaps this is a book that parents and grandparents would read to their children, uh, maybe if they're super young, but uh, the older children can also adapt to this. How long did it take to complete? Um, I would say, you know, with the process of me, you know, my prep time outlining and developing the story and um, the illustrator and then uh, the publishing itself, uh, I would say between about two to three months. Were there any challenges, Pete, in in getting this done? The, the concept of uh, live and animation, if I want to call it that, uh, was that something that was uh, used in your other books that you've completed so far? I was just curious whether they all have the same format. I know that the content, basically the same vision is there, but uh, do they have the same uh, illustrative uh, content style? Um, yes, the, 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 the content, correct. My writing, I try to stay true to that, of course, but I'm just using in my last two more of the facts of the teaching of the geographical area and just uh, in, having the kids enjoy that uh, that city and and learn about it and, and value the culture within the culture of the United States with all the cities to which they have their own culture. Um, and, you know, the, the illustrations, you know, I think you were asking this, uh, they're just, uh, you know, uh, I go to about seven, seven, seven to eight different places um, in, in the books uh, for my uh, third and fourth one um, where same as for Charlotte and, and Columbus so they're not too long, but they're uh, enough to where uh, it gives them some good information and a good story. Yeah, because you've been a resident of Charlotte for a while now, since I think 2017, something in that general time frame, it, was there anything in your involvement in the culture that surprised you, perhaps, or inspired you more than you anticipated when you began uh, exploring Charlotte and also uh, putting out the basic outline for this book? Yeah, I mean, when I got down here in, uh, you know, 2013, when I came, you know, sitting down and came up with my new concept and you know, well, I was just, you know, we, we learned about the city before we got down here. And then when we actually got down here and then explored ourselves and and I just I just looked at my wife and said, I got a great idea to how I can take Sammy to the next level and mm. and give some good lessons and and um, and really teach the kids, um, you know, uh, about our wonderful country and all these wonderful cities that they have so much there to offer. And this can be a way for kids who can't get there. This is a way for kids who actually live there and maybe appreciate more and learn more that, that maybe they don't know about uh, certain landmarks that are very important to the city that could teach them. So uh, there was so much uh, when I came up with this uh, 
with my new concept of teaching the kids about uh, the wonderful cities of the United States. Uh, the beginning, uh, beginning paragraph and also the uh, sketch in the front of the book, you have uh, Sammy with a T-shirt that says, I love Charlotte. And then Charlotte, I mean, I'm sorry, then Sammy addresses the reader. Hello, my friends. I'm on another big adventure in my fa- with my family in Charlotte, North Carolina. We're excited to be here to visit my cousin Adam and his family. So you bring in other characters as well. Uh, Sammy, obviously, is the tour guide for all of these adventures. Um, is there any way that you... Um, you've mentioned a sequel with other cities and other uh, locations. Is Sammy also going to take family members on those adventures and those trips as well? Yes. And uh, in my in my book, uh, Sammy's always with his family. Hmm. And I promote uh, family unity um, very much. Um, I have a meal in the beginning of my book and a meal at the end of my book with the family. Uh, I feel togetherness uh, is very important. Um, unity is important. It was in my family. Um, and then I think all families with the different schedules they have and all that, I just want to reinstill that, uh, make sure that I put that lesson in for the kids to see and, and take that into their adulthood also to understand that it's very important for communication and bonding and all that with their families. Beautiful. You obviously have the heart of a teacher or an instructor or an inspirer because uh, you have included, although this is a child's book or basically directed towards children, you've included historically accurate facts, uh, including the founding of Charlotte in 1768. Uh, That's something that most of the time you wouldn't find in a children's book. Uh, You talk a little of the queen who was the wife of King George III of England, and that's how the city got its name. So there are some very uh, important parts of the history that are included in your books. Is there anything that, in retrospect, you you would have uh, added to this book? Will there be a sequel, perhaps, to Charlotte? No, I mean, I'm not going to have a sequel to Charlotte. My, uh, what I'm trying to do, Jay, is I'm trying to hit uh, all 50 states. I'm trying to hit major cities that people would know and kids would know that they would want to read about. So my, my whole goal is to actually try to hit all 50 states. And then eventually I might uh, you know, hit another state later and use a couple of the cities um, in a different state. Um, and I probably might go back to Ohio, Jay, cause that's where I'm originally from. Hmm. And I might, I might actually hit, uh, where, you know, I actually grew up and I might actually go back to Dayton, Ohio, uh, later in the future. Cause that's where I actually started writing my books, uh, back in, uh, basically 2008, 2009. Fabulous listeners, uh, grandparents, parents, this is a book that not only will entertain, but also will inform your child or your grandchild. The title of which, again, is Sammy's Big Adventure. Sammy Explores Charlotte, North Carolina is the subtitle. A guest author, Pete Maravitz. Where do I get a copy of this, Pete? I, uh, I actually, you know, I, I work with the publisher uh, Ex Libris, um, but also Amazon.com is uh, where, you know, I'm also published, so people can purchase them there. Um, if they want to, you know, people want to contact me, uh, you know, my, my email is peas and Pete, M R A V E T Z at yahoo.com. 
Fabulous, Pete. Thank you for sharing your story, and best of luck in the future. I hope this goes just over the top, not only this book, but the ones in the future. I think it's a great idea, a great novel approach to educating uh, children, grandchildren, and uh, all the little young squirts in, in our lives, and making them aware of the world around them and giving them a positive value system to latch on to. Thank you again for sharing your passion. Thank you so much, Jay. It's It's been wonderful to talk to you. Pleasure to visit with you for Ex Libris On Air. This is Jay Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Congratulations on getting your book published. The effort you put into your work is truly commendable. But what's next? What will happen to all the knowledge you have worked so hard to acquire to produce your book? Here at Toginet Radio, we can provide you a platform to keep your knowledge working for you through the power of podcasts. The subjects our podcasts cover are as varied as the grains of sand on a beach. From life coaching, to military resources, to business success, even to the paranormal. We have a place for everyone. To get started on your next step, call Scott at 903-787-5880 or email him at Scott at toginetradio.com. That's S-C-O-T-T at T-O-G-I-N-E-T-R-A-D-I-O dot com. Welcome back to Ex Libris. Greetings for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled The Eye, Window to Body and Soul. And joining me from Florida is the ophthalmologist and doctor, Dr. W.A.J. Van Heuven. Welcome, sir, sir, to the program. Thank you. This is a fascinating book, and I will say that uh, because I anticipated the book to be kind of uh, clear, very uh, clinical in the way it was approached. It's 278 pages, but it takes all of the, not all of it, but many of the highlights of your storied history as a uh, an ophthalmologist and as a uh, uh, an instructor in that uh, that arena and have, have combined it into almost, uh, it's almost like a, a fictional account of some of the things that, that happened uh, during your practice. The first one in the book deals with a poison ivy incident with a young patient. Uh, oh, yeah. Which was, right. was really uh, heart-rending. Share with my listeners a little of that story. Oh, okay. Uh, the poison ivy incident was a child. It, this happened, actually, during my first week of training. Wow. <laughs> 1963, and, uh, wasn't it? Something like that. In, in 1961. 61. And the the child was brought in by a mother who, and they had just been away. Uh, I was living in New Haven, and I was at Yale at the time, and the mother brought in the child. They had just come home from their vacation in on Nantucket Island, and... Uh, the child had uh, there were a lot of children there, and they, many of them had gotten poison ivy, and everybody was being very careful to watch out for the typical poison ivy plant along the path of Nantucket. Anyway, this child developed uh, what looked like poison ivy, and it was mostly 
uh, he'd had it before and it was sort of everywhere, but this time it was mostly around his face. Mm. And uh, uh, especially around one eye. And uh, the mother was chastising the child for getting into the poison ivy again. Uh, and the child uh, was being very quiet. And uh, uh, then uh, after I examined the child, I wasn't looking for anything except for poison ivy. Hmm. The mother had actually sort of duped me into thinking that it was. And then I realized that maybe there was something else going on, too. One eye was a little more prominent than the other. And when I asked the child about that, he tried to dismiss it, but then agreed that uh, as he kept one eye slightly closed, uh, he was doing that to prevent seeing double. Wow. And so then that prompted me to look at it more carefully, and I realized that there was something that was making that eye more prominent, pushing it forward. And in fact, the area around the eye didn't look anything like poison ivy. It was just red. So we, uh, so I looked and I then suggested we do some x-rays and so on. And as it turned out, uh, the child had a, a tumor mm. in the orbit right next to the eye. And the, the tumor was growing and pushing the eye forward. So once I realized that was going on, we had biopsies done and all that sort of stuff. And it turned out that the child had a, an unusual condition, but something that tends to occur only in children. It's called rhabdomyosarcoma of, of, of an eye muscle. So one of the muscles around the eye that moves the eye had been in, infested by a rapidly growing, highly malignant cancer. Wow. And in those days, the delay in making that diagnosis didn't make much difference because 100% of those children were dead within Ouch. six months, mm. as was the case in this boy. But today, it would have been nice to have made that diagnosis very early. If that happened today, it would be nice to be be a little more observant on my part and less intimidated by the mother and really look at the kid the first time around very carefully to see that this was not poison ivy, but that this was a cancer. Anyway, today, uh, with modern medical therapy, medical cancer therapy, about 70% of these children survive. Wow. That's so to, today, it would be best to do a better job for the eye doctor well, than I did. Great, well, great time. progress. At the, at the time, the, this, the community, the ophthalmologist community, did not have the tools that it has today, so it really was not a bad reflection on you, but it was a, uh, and, and is a warning to, right. to uh, the reader. The, the eye health is very important, and is that the reason you wrote the book? Well, the eye is very important, but it's interesting. The eye is important the, uh, because it not only uh, 
if you do a good examination of the eye, it not only shows you what's wrong with the eye, and maybe you, the doctor, can then prevent loss of vision, you know, blindness and that kind of thing, yes. which is what doctors, what eye doctors are supposed to be doing. But if you really look at the eye carefully, you'll see many, many uh, other things that have other diseases of the body that have a footprint in the eye. And I can read you something about that yes. for, for a minute, sure. if you want. Yes, please. Please share that. I just want to read this to you. It's, it's, it's a word about ophthalmology. You know, ophthalmology is classified as a surgical subspecialty. However, it is largely non-surgical and deals mostly with medically treated eye conditions as well as many systemic diseases, which are often visible in the eye long before they cause general signs or symptoms. This is famously true, for example, in adult onset diabetes, where the diagnosis in over 60% is made by the ophthalmologist really? long before the patient even knows they have diabetes. And this is according to a decade-old study from Great Britain. That's a fascinating... The, the that's, reason, a, yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, isn't it? The reason why an eye doctor is often... Um, make an, can make an early diagnosis stems from the unique structure of the eye, which combines transparency with an optical system that focuses light. Thus, the examiner can truly get a clear picture of the inside of the or of the eye, the mm. uh, the organ, and see blood vessels, nerves, blood cells, and pathologic deposits, which help the physician narrow the differential diagnosis list even before a single blood test is done. Unlike many fields in modern medicine where lab tests and imaging studies are often ordered before the doctor even touches the patient, ophthalmologists still rely heavily on the art of physical diagnosis. They know that many common diseases such as syphilis, tuberculosis, AIDS, rheumatoid arthritis, some fungal and parasitic diseases, immunologic diseases like lupus erythematosus, and many others have specific footprints within the eye. Because of this, doctors, family, eye doctors, family practitioners, internists, and pediatricians are in constant catalog with each other. Uh, constant dialogue with each other, sorry, uh, and rely heavily on each other as well. And so primary care providers and ophthalmologists have something else in common too. They both get to know their patients very well, even for a lifetime sometimes, which makes the practice of medicine more interesting and rewarding. And uh, I tell you that these general doctors and ophthalmologists uh, get to know their patients very well because everybody ultimately after the age of 40 has an eye doctor. You know, you don't, you don't can't say that for orthopedic surgeons or urologists. You know, if you say, do you have an orthopedic surgeon? People say, no, I don't need one. Right. Everybody over the age of 40 has at some point in their life seen an eye doctor. So what? eye doctors 
often keep those patients for for forever. You know, I I know patients I've seen for forty years. Incredible. You know, and through their reading glasses at age forty, but then their cataracts later on and other things even later. One thing I want to want to emphasize about your book again, it, it each of the uh, instances that you reflect on really almost read like a novel because you do have dialogue between the individuals in those stories. I, I remember one that specifically right. stood out to me was uh, an individual who was important in your early upbringing, a lady by the name of Henny, and yet the, oh, yeah. the story turns out to be s- sort of sad. Uh, because she became engaged and her her prospective husband became ill, and you discovered that through, uh, or, or they was discovered through an eye exam. Is that correct? That's correct. Actually, I looked I looked at him, and he had a lot of damage to his hand. He was a carpenter. Yes. Henny was our maid, and he was a carpenter. And he, but he had something that's unusual for carpenters, and that is. He had a lot of band-aids on his eye, on his on his hands, mm. and, and you know he was blaming that basically on his job. But I was thinking it's a little unusual for a carpenter to keep hitting himself in the and hurting himself. You know, I mean right. carpenters know how to handle hammers <laughs> without hurting themselves. Yes. So uh, it turned out he had. He, he, he had a total loss of sensitivity of his limbs. Mm. He could not feel or feel touch or even or pain in his hands or feet. And uh, that was sort of a typical finding in uh, in a condition uh, that 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 was associated with uh, blood vessel tumors in the brain and in the eye. Wow. And so it was that recognition that made me want to look at his eye. So I looked at his eye, and indeed he had a few of these small tumors in the periphery of his retina in both eyes that could also explain his loss of sensitivity of his limbs. So I sent him to a neurosurgeon who in fact found or several of these tumors in his spinal cord as well. And uh, he was operated. It's interesting that I actually had two almost identical patients like this in my career. But anyway, he was operated, and uh, but they recurred as they usually do. And in the, the first of these patients I saw, we didn't have any laser, so we couldn't uh, treat the eye and prevent those from bleeding in the eye. Later on, we were able to use lasers to to treat those tumors in the eye, but that did not cure the condition. Mm. And both both of these men died eventually from the uh, from the brain tumors. Incredible! Yes. Uh, you've, you've, your book is uh, divided into nine different parts, and uh, I yes. I did read another story about Q-tips and the dangers of those, which I think would be a warning to parents if they're dealing with that type of thing. <laughs> uh, one other question I have for you, because you know those two stories that we've recounted or reflected on are sort of sad. Are there also humorous uh, stories or maybe feel-good stories in your recollections? The last few stories uh, at the end of the book, and I'm I'm sort of looking at my 
Uh, you have something one, through this. Yes, she gave what she could. Yeah, was the, one. Yes. Well, yes, but uh, there, there are five chapters there, all of which have a, a are positive. I mean, uh, she gave what she could, and also growing up fast, which is an experience I had when I was in West Africa. Mm. Uh, I'll forever love you, which is a story about a, lay, a, a gal who had diabetes and whom who was out of control in her diabetes control. And uh, she and her general doctor and I decided that this girl was not going to go down the tube like another joint patient of ours had mm. because she didn't listen to us and did not control her diabetes and went blind and then went then died. But no, this girl was, uh, we finally agreed that she should get married and then we sent her to an adoption agency and she had some children through the adoption agency and she turned out to be a pretty normal, happy and surviving diabetic. Yeah, in spite of getting married, she was she was a happy individual, you say. Mm. <laughs> in spite of getting married. <laughs> I'm sorry about That's that. Funny. Yeah, I, 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 do, yeah. I do love the way you've approached the stories, though. It, although there are some, uh, I, I would call them uh, stories that may have a, uh, a warning in them for uh, people who don't go to eye doctors and ophthalmologists, they should. Uh, this is actually an entertaining read in many respects. It's almost like a whodunit in some regards. Uh, is this the only book well, you, you've, you've, you've written, sir? Uh, well, it's the only book like this I've written. Yes. I, wrote, I wrote a couple of books which were textbooks in ophthalmology, uh, which the lay public would not want to read. All right. Uh, they call it decision making in ophthalmology, uh, which was a uh, a series uh, that I wrote, uh, and it was a good seller, sold by Mosby. Uh, and then uh, I wrote a, I wrote a history book about the history of ophthalmology in Texas, which was somewhat unique uh, in that it came directly from Europe rather than through the through Britain or through the East Coast, Boston or New York, it went straight from Germany, which was then the headquarters of ophthalmology back in the, in the 1800s. Uh, it went straight to Texas wow. uh, because of the Mexican-Texas wars, which had wiped out a large part of the uh, population of farmers. And so they needed to import farmers, and they imported them from Germany. If you go to San Antonio, you'll see a lot of German street names. There are, yes, and a lot of, yeah, a lot of German names. Period. Absolutely. So, I, in fact, I I attended a, a small school in San Antonio and have some history there myself. Again, listeners, this book is not a clinical book. It actually is. I would use the word entertaining. It's it's informative for sure, and uh, deals with your case histories uh, with many patients and also a positive, uplifting, uh, conversational style, which I I very much appreciate. Although it's two hundred and seventy eight pages, I don't think anybody would be bored reading it at all. It's very well done, uh, Doctor. Thank you for sharing it. The title, again, is The Eye, Window to Body and Soul. 
an ophthalmologist odyssey and my guest author who has joined me from florida where he's uh, kicking back and having a good time out of the snow and uh, cold of the northwest northeast w.a.j van heuven md thank you sir for joining me today and sharing your story absolutely you're very welcome well beautiful job where do we get copies of this doctor well uh you can get copies at any bookstore they can get it for you yes it's published by you know the publisher is uh uh ex libris uh is the name of the publishing house but you can also get it on amazon very good. They can request it at their local bookseller for sure. And uh, Van Heuven is spelled V-A-N-H-E-U-V-E-N-M-D. Dr. Van Heuven, thank you for joining me today and sharing your story. This is, a, again, a wonderful and entertaining and insightful read. Thank you for sharing your, your history with us. Thank you very much. For Ex Libris On Air, this is Jay Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Only once every few years does a show come along that makes you think, makes you care, makes you believe the impossible. A show featuring only the best in writing, acting, and directing. Until that show comes along, we suggest Paranoria, Texas. Thrilled to the adventures of six super-powered nerds on a never-ending quest to take over the world and to complete their collection of She-Hulk comics. Paranoria, Texas, Monday nights at 8 p.m. Central on AstronetRadio.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris. Greetings for Ex Libris on air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book title is The King's Death. And joining me is author, this second in a series that will be a trilogy, Ed Cannon, who joins me from near Wichita, Kansas. Thank you for joining me today, Ed. Thank you for calling me. Pleasure to talk to you. It's good to visit with you. We have talked before. The first book, I don't recall all of the details on it. But this, as you have uh, indicated to me, is the second in what you hope will be uh, a trilogy. This one titled The King's Death. Share a little of your background. Is being an author your focus at this point in your life? How would you explain your interest in writing? Well, I've been interested in writing since, I'll say, high school. Um, I was on the newspaper staff for a while, um, wrote some articles for for them on the school newspaper, more as a consulting or a, a contributing uh, person. And then I wrote some stories for the school anthology, some short stories. So I've always been interested in writing, but I was I went to college and was trained as an electrical engineer. Mm. And so I've been, I was, so I did electrical engineering for all of my career, but I started my first book, The King's Assassin, while I was in college. Really? Um mm. I had this idea of a guy walking out of the desert. I didn't know who he was, where he was going. I did the five W's, who, what, where, when, why, and how. I didn't know. And slowly, as I avoided doing some calculus homework, the story came to me. And so I passed the calculus, kept writing, and graduated college, got my first job, and continued to tinker with the story. And then life proceeded to happen. 
and I got married, had some boys, um, and life got busy. So it ended up sitting on the shelf for a long time. And I finally found it, finished it, published a couple of years ago as The King's Assassin. Wonderful. While I was working through that process, I started writing The King's Death. Mm. And it's the continuation of the story. Um, Silic, my hero, is still trying to avenge his father's death and his older brothers. He has now been crowned, crowned king and is finding out that this fight that he's in is much larger than he initially thought, and the fate of the world depends on him and his allies. So he's trying to gather more allies, and he has to go on basically a magical quest to find some items that were dispersed the last time this happened in order to protect the world. Absolutely. It'll lead into my next book. Share with my listeners a little of the style of this book and the time frame, because that's kind of important. This is dealing with magic and, and other issues that I guess many listeners and, and readers are familiar with. So it's swords, dragons, magic, fantasy in a medieval setting, but it's not truly a, a historical medieval setting. Um, Women hold places of honor in this world. They hold high positions of responsibility. Um, I have many strong female characters supporting my hero. Beautiful. And so I think it will appeal to male and female readers, um, men and women, uh, boys and girls, from teenage on up. Um, So... It's really a broad, broad spectrum. But since women hold a position of honor and dignity in my world, it's not truly what we consider a historically accurate medieval setting. You, I think it's a better medieval setting, if you will. Uh, 558 pages is uh, quite a task to uh, complete. Uh, did it take a long time? And uh, when you approach writing uh, a novel of this type uh, that has a lot of uh, fictional character characterizations in it and and imagination do you work from an outline how do you how do you approach it i i started with an outline and i wrote i wrote the beginning was real easy and then i i basically said okay these are the major events that my primary character is going to be involved in here's other events that are going to have to happen along the way and so i i I took some 11 by 17 sheets of paper and taped them together and basically charted main character, sub characters across. And then I drew lines w- together where those characters intersected. Mm. And so I knew who was in chapters, if you will, or who was in scenes and was able to flow it together. Almost an engineering approach. It sounds like uh, that that you pulled from your background. It's exactly like an engineering approach. (laughs) If if this was an engineering problem, I would have approached it much the same way. I did write some of the chapters out of order because, okay, well, this chapter really speaks to me right now, and I've got some really cool ideas for it, so I'm going to go write it. And then I've got – so I did write it bits and pieces out of order, uh, 
but to a large degree, it basically flowed left to right, and I and I just checked each one off as I went across, and refined it a couple times and tweaked it as always. But it was a lot of fun. Well, as an engineer, and because of that background, would you uh, say it was difficult or complex to uh, include the conversational style that you have uh, have penned in this book? No, I really don't think it was difficult at all because. When I was doing the charting or the outlining, um, I went through and decided up front who was going to be the primary voice in each chapter. And in my early versions of that, you know, I had the chapter name and then I had decided where was it. And then off to the off to the right, I had who's the primary speaker. Mm. You know, whose who's head am I going to be in in this chapter? Yes. And and that got erased when we did the editing, but that was a a way for me to keep straight. Okay, this character is going to be primary here, or this one's going to be here. So I was switching it up, and, and there were reasons why one character or another was going to be primary, but the readers will have to, to read that to understand why. Uh, Ed, did you uh, approach this as an action novel? In other words, uh, are they going to be uh, going from one action scene to the next, or was it character-driven? Probably a a little bit of both. There's some character development along the way. Um, Places where I introduced new characters, um, I had to set the scene and introduce them before it became an action scene. So there was a little bit of both in the process. You mentioned strong characters, uh, that the uh, female uh, characters in this novel are fairly strong individuals. Uh, Was it the same in your first novel? And if so, have you had uh, feedback from female readers that uh, reinforced that uh, good choice that you made? Yes, it was the the same in my first book. I introduced uh, Brianna in book one, who is the sword master of the city of Elysia, and which means that she's the best swords person in the city. Mm. And so she holds the rank, and she is the defender of the crown in that position. So right, right away, you know, she assumes her position standing behind, behind the king or the, or the crown prince when he returns and has a position of protection and honor. And later she gets promoted to war master to go execute the war as the, basically the commanding general. Uh, where is the country or the, the area that you have fantasized or have created in this novel? Is it uh, an area that we would recognize? You know, many of these types of novels are in Great Britain or in Europe, or is this a completely different imaginative world that you have created? Well, it, it it's it's got elements of, of a world that we would recognize, but it's got major, um, it's its own self-contained world, if you will, a continent. The city of Elysia is located in the middle of a, of a great desert called the Weeping Waste, and which is a very treacherous place to venture into. There are uh, obviously all the creatures of the desert, but I added some uh, really nasty 
uh, sand snakes, which uh, devour people if, if they walk across the sand and are caught, caught unaware. So the city of Elysia is, is there, but the, it's also a place of great wealth because when they built the city, they start finding gold and jewels and so there's great wealth associated with them. And then they establish trade routes that they go pick up traders from other cities. It's yeah. sort of financial and militaristic control over the rest of the world. It's a fascinating idea that, uh, that you've created in this novel. Uh, obviously, the uh, termination, perhaps, and I, I won't have you give away the, uh, the uh, total uh, storyline, but it does have the title, The King's Death. Uh, is that uh, something that we are looking forward to in the novel, if, if I may put it that way? Uh, absolutely, because it's, it's not what you expect. There's a twist, there's a turn, and I'm obviously not going to reveal it, but our hero uh, meets a soothsayer. Let me get that out. And, and he's looking for what she sees, and she gives him a little bit of advice and saying says that um, if he's not careful in returning home, he's going to die. But if he but he must die in order to get home. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So so how do you balance that? If I if I've got to die to get home, then I can't. How am I going? And he he figures it out, but then things don't turn out the way he wants them to or expects them to because um, things happen. Well, the results and, are, and so that's left to know, the reader. Definitely a mystery in in uh, in that title as well as the definitive, which says the king's death. Now, in writing this, uh, was there one particular scene that, in looking back, you have a great deal of pride and enjoyment reflecting on how that all came together? Actually, I did. There, there's a great scene. Several of my characters. Who are who are left behind after are are basically thrust into a a political situation that while the king's away things are deteriorating uh, in his home city again uh, the forces of evil are are marching and they depose his chosen um, representative so they have to flee. But they're caught escaping, and, and the their savior is the thieves' guild. Mm. Well, the thieves have got a grudge against some of them because they're the grandmaster of the thieves' guild was killed by some of the people that are um, deposing the good guys, if you will. And they basically say, well, we'll let you go to this king of yours if he's going to come back and clean, clean things up. But we're going to keep one of you, to, and you've got to come back, and then you've got to pay her weight in gold in order to get her back alive. Mm, mystery and for sure. So the, the thieves become a, a major point, 
but they help her and then she helps them because she takes the fight to uh, the bad guys. So I was really happy with the way that that worked out. And I've gotten a lot of feedback uh, from people saying, oh, I like her. She's smart. She's witty. And it's um, savvy the way she picks out who to keep and who to let go. Well, congratulations. That that sounds like a a very complex character development that you have created. Uh, 558 pages must have taken a long time to complete. Was, uh, was there any challenge that you uh, had to overcome to get this published? The biggest challenge was it came back from the from the during the from the second round of editing about a week after I had had shoulder surgery, uh-huh. and so I had one arm basically immobilized, and I had my publisher saying, "Well, we'd like you to get it back to us in two weeks." <laughs> there, there's no way I can one review this in two weeks. Two. I can't use one arm because it's immobilized for six weeks. So it it was very, very challenging to to get through get through that editing process uh with my sanity and, and the with the limitations upon me. So that, that was a major obstacle and at, at several points during that it was you know, maybe I ought to just wait six months until I can type again. Right. Or, and, um, before, you know, I, and I, I was worried about, you know, am I in a, too much of a fog to, to even deal with this? So. The cover turned out beautifully. I mean, it, this, the book itself is very striking. It should uh, jump off the shelf if someone were to walk through a, uh, a bookseller and, and uh, be looking in a, a novel or in a fiction uh, section. Uh, this would definitely jump off the shelf. Uh, Ed, where do my listeners get a copy can of I, this? Can I, can I, before we do yeah, that, can I talk sure. about the, the cover for just a moment? Absolutely. Because you, you brought a great point. Um I hired a friend of the family. She's a local artist here in, in the Wichita. She's now moved up to Kansas City. Um, and she's gotten married and changed her name, but um, she's a professional artist. She used to work with the uh, Wichita Music Theater doing set designs hmm. here in Wichita. And she worked for a uh, local painting company that would do... Um, basically scenes on, on blank walls, you know, yes. make it look like it's a wine cellar or make it look oh, yes. like it's a library, different scenes like that on, on, on walls with the texturing. So I, but I've known her since she was in elementary school. She was, uh, her brother was in Cub Scouts with my son. So I've, I've known her for a very long time. Mm. And when I did, my first book, I approached her and said, would you do a cover for me? Here's what I'm envisioning. Here's chapter one. See what you think. And she came back with a fantastic cover for book one. So we did, when book two came up and I said, I need a cover. Will you be willing to do it? Here's chapter one. And I think she did an absolutely amazing job on the cover. 
Then I went back to her, said, I want some additional artwork. Um, and here's what I'm envisioning for the additional artwork for both book one and book two. And, and she did an amazing job with those. And she also drew my map that I have in the book. And I've got the colorized version um, hanging on one of my walls here in the house. And I've got both covers um, on my mantle because they are both striking and attention-grabbing, particularly book two. Right. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm in the preliminary phases now of talking to her about artwork for book three. And I've got a couple scenes already in mind that could vie for the cover art um, that I'll be talking to her about shortly. It's beautiful. She's done a phenomenal job. Uh, the uh, listeners will want to get a copy of this or need to. How do they do so, Ed? Um, there are, are several ways to get it. Uh, obviously, Amazon, Barnes & Noble have, have both copies. My publisher has their own website, uh, exlibris.com. Ed Cannon Books is my website. Uh, we'll have a link to my publisher's website. Uh, Books a Million has them. Uh, basically, any place you you get your books from will have them. Um, Amazon also has an Audible version of Book One. We don't have an Audible version for Book Two yet. Um, that's still in the works. Uh, there are hard copy, paperback, and Kindle versions available for download. Um, Apple, on their uh, iTunes website, has uh, iTunes versions of uh, both books. So it's basically available wherever you get your book from. Fabulous. And uh, listeners, you can do a search under Ed's name, E-D, last name, K, I'm sorry, C-A-N-N-O-N, just like it sounds, Ed Cannon, and find this book and the first in the series, the third in the trilogy, will be coming out shortly. And Ed, I am fascinated by the fact that you are are obsessed with writing and are doing such a phenomenal job. This one, 558 pages. Thanks for sharing its story and sharing it with my listeners. You're welcome. Thank you. My pleasure for Ex Libris On Air. This is Jay Douglas Barker. Thank you.